morning. Romans chapter 1, verse 21 to chapter 2, verse 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason... God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore, you have no excuse, O human, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. The word of the Lord. We're in a series in which we are looking at uh, a series of topics that share two things in common. First, they're contested in our culture. Second, Uh, They involve our embodiedness as human beings. This morning, we're talking about same-sex relationships. There are many reasons I would prefer not to talk about this. The main one is, as a straight white man, I'm probably not the most qualified. But there are even better reasons we should talk about this. And the most important to me is precisely because of our gay friends, neighbors, loved ones, and co-workers. For instance, Eric Borges was a gay man who grew up in a fundamentalist Christian church. His whole life was full of verbal, emotional, um, mental, and physical abuse beginning in kindergarten. He was once assaulted in a full classroom, and no one, not even the teacher, did anything to stop it. He, uh, He experienced migraines depression, suicidal thoughts, and many other afflictions. He said that growing up, my name was not Eric, but faggot. When he came out to his parents, they told him that he was disgusting, perverted, unnatural, and damned to hell, and then they kicked him out of the house. Nonetheless, in spite of all that, Eric went on to work with other LGBTQ youth and posted a very famous video on YouTube in 2011 where he encouraged them it gets better. Tragically, however, Eric, just a few months later, committed suicide. Now, um, we might say that's an extreme story, and it is, but it's also way too common. Um, In fact, even if that doesn't describe everyone's story, I've talked to so many of my own gay friends who have shared with me the fear 
shame and heartbreak of growing up in this world, not just in our culture, but especially in the church. And so if any of this describes you, um, then first of all, as a pastor and a representative of the church, I want to say I am so sorry. And second, um, I want to say that I'm really grateful and encouraged that you're here this morning because the church has not been a safe place for gay people. So as we get into this topic, I want to emphasize that this is not just a topic or an issue. These are people. I think about my friends. I think about my loved ones, like my big brother, John Paul, who died of AIDS in 1993. These are people with names and stories and hurts and dreams. So let's remember them as we get into this topic. Um, Now, this passage that we just read is intense. I almost thought, should we issue a trigger warning before we read this out loud in the 21st century, online, for all the world to hear? You know, there are a lot of other passages in the Bible that we could have looked at to talk about this. In fact, if we really wanted to be thorough, we'd look at all of them. But I don't want to keep you here for the next five hours. And you don't want to be here for the next five hours either. So why this passage? Here's why. Christians with a high view of Scripture disagree on the topic of same-sex relationships. A high view of Scripture means that you believe all of the Bible is God's word and you want to submit to all of its authority. Historically, Christians with a high view of Scripture have been what our culture calls non-affirming. And for the sake of honesty, I'm in that category. However... Over the years, there have been a rapidly increasing number of Christians with a high view of Scripture who do believe that the Bible gives us reasons to affirm consensual, loving, monogamous, same-sex marriage. And here's the thing. I don't get to say that they don't value Scripture or that they don't love Jesus. In fact, I'm the one who could be wrong. But here's the thing. Both Non-affirming and affirming Christians with a high view of Scripture both agree that this passage is the most significant discussion of same-sex relationships in the New Testament. So that's why we're going to look at it. So, let's take a deep breath and dive in. We are barely scratching the surface here. This is a huge conversation. We are not going to be able to unpack all of the questions. That said, let's ask three questions. What is our frame? What is Paul saying? And what does it mean for us? What's our frame? What's Paul saying? And what does it mean for us? Okay? First, what is our frame? You know, understanding this passage is not actually our biggest challenge this morning. Our biggest challenge is we all bring a frame to this conversation. We talked about this last week. A frame is a way of picturing something. For instance, when people find out that I'm a pastor, a Christian pastor, oftentimes one of their very first questions to me is, so, are you affirming? Now, I know exactly what they mean, and I use the language of affirming and non-affirming because in our culture it's just the clearest, fastest way of talking about this. But I totally disagree with the frame because it assumes that its own definition of affirmation is the only valid definition. Now listen, I'm not saying that we should get rid of our frames. In fact, it's impossible not to have a frame. What I'm saying is we should be aware of our frames. Here's why this is so important. 
I could launch into this passage right now and start giving you all the facts and reasons for what I believe. But that wouldn't be the best place to start because facts are really effective within a frame. But facts are almost powerless between frames. For instance, George Lakoff is a cognitive linguist who puts it like this. He says, people think in frames. To be accepted, the truth must fit people's frames. If the facts do not fit the frame, guess what happens? The frame stays and the facts bounce off. This is why you have never changed someone's mind politically by just dumping facts on them. Friends, in order to have this conversation, we need to be aware of our frame. Now, last week, we saw that our culture's frame for sex is that sex is a physical appetite we should be free to enjoy as long as we have consent. So our culture's frame of sex is consent-based freedom. And by the way, if there is no God, I think this is a perfectly legitimate frame. Um, interestingly, though, when it comes to same-sex marriage, both our culture and affirming Christians have a much higher, far nobler frame for sex. And we see it in that slogan we're all very familiar with, love is love. This is a powerful frame. What does it mean? Well, rather than define it, let me give you a picture. In the 1994 British romantic comedy, Four Weddings and a Funeral, there's a very famous scene in which a gay man named Matthew reads a W.H. Auden poem at the funeral of his partner, Gareth, who passed away suddenly. And the poem says, He was my north, my south, my east, my west, my working week, and my Sunday rest, my noon, my midnight, my talk, my song. I thought that love would last forever. I was wrong. Matthew's love for Gareth, is an incredibly moving picture of the frame, love is love. In fact, uh, Rebecca McLaughlin is a non-affirming Christian writer who experiences ongoing same-sex attraction and who's also married to a man with kids. And if you're not too distracted by trying to hold all of those things together in your mind, um, here's what she says about this scene. She says, this film fleshes out the claim that a same-sex romance can be just as faithful, deep, and enduring as a heterosexual one, and therefore same-sex couples should be able to marry. Friends, this is a very high view of sex and an incredibly powerful frame. In fact, last week we saw that the biblical vision of sex is that it is a radically intimate act of self-giving that involves the whole person. We also saw that the Bible emphasizes that this should only take place in the context of marriage. But even if that's the case, here's the big question. Why can't gay people have this? Because gay people can be every bit as loving and committed as straight couples can be. I think that's the big question that's on the table here. And I also think there are very compelling reasons to consider it. For instance, um, affirming Christians point out something that we saw last week. That in the ancient world, men uh, had a lot of sexual freedom. They could have uh, sex with prostitutes and slaves. Many of these slaves were teenage boys. This was exploitative sex. 
Exploitative means that powerful men were exploiting their power over weaker people, including boys and slaves. Exploitative sex. Affirming Christians also point out that in the ancient world, um, they didn't have the category of what we know as sexual orientation. That didn't come along until the 19th century. That doesn't mean that there were no gay people 2,000 years ago. Of course there were. It just means that wasn't a part of their frame. And lastly, affirming Christians will say that in the ancient world, they never had any examples of consensual, loving, monogamous, same-sex relationships. They never saw a Matthew and a Gareth. And that what Paul is condemning here is not loving, committed same-sex relationships, but exploitative, coercive relationships. And that if he had seen a Matthew and a Gareth, that of course he would have affirmed them. Now that is a powerful frame. Do you see how powerful that is? I do, and I hope you do too. But can we also look under the hood? Um, Often, not always, but oftentimes there's an assumption that um, in order for love to be love and, and for human life to be truly fulfilling, there's this assumption often that um, it must include sexual fulfillment. For instance, Matthew Vines is an affirming Christian scholar. He's gay, highly intelligent. He has an extremely high view of scripture. And as far as I can tell, he loves Jesus. In his book, God and the Gay Christian, which I encourage you to read, he says that, he acknowledges that our culture does idolize sexual fulfillment, but he also says that celibacy is a gift, and if you don't have the gift, then mandatory celibacy causes what he calls unnecessary suffering and a devastating level of hurt and anguish. Now, we have to take that seriously. You know, I was single and celibate for most of my 20s and all of my 30s. So I've had just a taste of this. There is no question that celibacy can be a painful experience. But are we willing to assume that sexual fulfillment is an absolute prerequisite for a flourishing human life and the possibility of intimate, loving relationships? That's a huge question. Your frame will play a huge part in how you answer it. Do you see the importance of the frame we bring to this conversation? If so, let's move on to our next question. We've just asked, what is our frame? But secondly, what is Paul saying here? Let's dig into the passage, okay? Um, Romans is a famous letter in which Paul is explaining the Christian gospel. Uh, And he begins by showing how every human being, both Gentile and Jew, is in bondage to sin and in need of redemption. So in verse 25, he says, They, that is humans, exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. He's talking about idolatry. Idolatry is, is when our loves and our desires are all out of order and we end up worshiping something other than God. In verses 26 and 27, right after this, Paul uses same-sex relationships as a case study. Here's what he says. Women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to give you a very simple 
overview, very simple, of the main questions and positions that both non-affirming and affirming Christians um, focus on in this passage. Again, we are just scratching the surface here. That said, we are going to burn some brain calories over the next few minutes, so take a sip of coffee, get your neighbor to poke you, whatever you need to do to stay awake, okay? First, um, as we just saw, what about this claim that in the ancient world, they never had any examples of any uh, consensual, loving, monogamous, same-sex relationships. They never saw a Matthew and a Gareth. The truth is that there were actually many examples of this in the ancient world. Um, I'm not going to cite them all. It would take too much time. But if you're curious about this, read chapter 4 in Preston Sprinkle's book, People to be Loved, another book I highly encourage. Uh, he gives a wonderful overview of this. That said, however, it is true that in the ancient world, most male same-sex relationships were exploitative. That is, things like pederasty, which is men having sex with teenage boys, or men, uh, masters having sex with slaves. It was exploitative, coercive sex. But here's the thing. When we look at this passage, um, first of all, there were a lot of words and terms that described this kind of exploitative sex that that were regularly used in the ancient world and that were very much available to Paul and everybody would have known what he was talking about. He doesn't use those words. Furthermore, when we look at what he actually does say, he talks about men being consumed with passion for one another. One another seems to indicate that this was consensual, not exploitative. But even more importantly, um, the women in the ancient world. There are, there are a lot of ancient sources that um, show us that women had same-sex relationships in the ancient world. And even though um, ancient writers regularly condemned male same-sex relationships because they were exploitative, the women's relationships were not exploitative. And yet Paul is critiquing both the women and the men in this passage. I, I don't think that Paul is talking about exploitative sex here, as, as bad as that is. Don't do that, okay? Um, that's just not what he's talking about here, I don't think. Second, affirming scholars um, will point out that what Paul is critiquing here is not same-sex relationships per se, but excessive lust. So notice, again, in the, the language that Paul uses, he talks about men being consumed with passion. Now, affirming scholars will point out very correctly that in the ancient world there were a lot of writers, especially Jewish writers, that um, condemned same-sex relationships because of excessive lust. This is very true. Now, I actually think this is a very powerful argument. Uh, nonetheless, I, I do also think there are some problems with it. Um, let me mention just a couple. Um, first, again, the women. It's true that um, Many ancient writers condemned um, male same-sex relationships because of excessive lust, but they never condemned the women on the same basis. And, and yet, here again, we see that Paul is critiquing both the women and the men. Second, uh, being consumed with passion is not the only thing that's going on in this passage. Notice Paul talks about how women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women. Uh, this phrase, do you see this phrase contrary to nature? Let me just give you like a little window into the wild, wild word, world of biblical studies. Um, 
this phrase is like ground zero in many of the scholarly discussions focused on same-sex relationships in Romans 1. Scholars talk about, I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of pages that talking about this one phrase right here. What does contrary to nature mean? Affirming scholars point out that in the ancient world, this phrase was used by, um, by um, writers to uh, talk about men who, um, who took on the passive or, or uh, receptive female role in sex. Does that make sense? I'm trying not to be too graphic. But that's what this is talking about. That was a big no-no in the ancient world. I mean, this was a really big deal. And all the literature talks about this. That is, this was considered extremely degrading to men to do this. Why? Because women were inferior to men. And to take the role of a woman, a woman is degrading to men. Do you see the problem with this view? It requires us to see Paul as being just as misogynistic as the rest of the ancient world. Now, maybe you think Paul was a misogynist. Lots of people do. But here at this church, one of the big reasons we ordain women is because of Paul's counterculturally exalted view of women. Paul called women prophets, deacons, apostles, co-laborers in the gospel. Women led house churches that Paul planted. I don't think uh, that contrary to nature... Uh, is when Paul uses it, that he's talking about um, men taking a degrading position in the sex act. I think, along with many other scholars, that there's actually a much better explanation of what this phrase means here. Um, did you notice throughout this passage, um, Paul uses all kinds of words like creator, creation, men, women, image, likeness, and other words like birds and creeping things. Does that, do your ears start tingling a little bit when you hear that? If you're familiar with the Bible, you might recognize that Romans 1 is full of words and imagery from the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. And both non-affirming and affirming scholars all acknowledge this. Paul is saying something about creation here. In fact, what he's saying is that when human beings ignore their biological sex, that this is contrary to nature. That it's a reversal or an exchange of God's created order. So, for instance, you notice in this passage, what we see here is a pattern of exchange. Notice how he puts it. In verse 23, humans exchanged the glory of God. Verse 26, women exchanged natural relations with men. Verse 27, men gave up natural relations with women. There's a pattern of exchange here. And Paul is saying that when we ignore our biological sex, it's a reversal or an exchange of the created order. And that's what he's critiquing here. Friends, uh, let me try to summarize this for us. Um, oh, by the way, you know, don't just take my word for this. And don't just take um, Christian theologians' word for this. One of the fascinating things to me in my own study on this was reading historians like Kyle Harper. I read him last week. Or I mentioned him last week. Kyle Harper is a highly respected historian who um, uh, his expertise is on sexual morality in the ancient world. I mean, he's read hundreds of texts. He is an expert. This is his area of expertise. And when he reads Romans 1, it's really interesting. He zeroes right in on this. Here's what he says. He says, Paul's overriding sense of gender, and by that he means biological sex, rather than age or status, that's talking about power differentials in the ancient world. He says, Paul's sense of biological sex 
For him, that was the prime determinant in the propriety of a sexual act. Now, this is dense scholarly language, but Kyle Harper is saying that Paul's focus here is biological sex, not power differentials. Now, let me summarize. Paul is not critiquing same-sex relationships, I don't think, because of excessive lust or exploitative sex or, or because it's degrading to men. As bad as all those things are, don't do those things. Paul is he's critiquing it because sex was created by God uh, to bring humans of the opposite sex together as a way of picturing our ultimate spousal union between the creator and the creature. In other words, sex is, is union, but it's a union of difference. Sex is meant to be a union, but a union of difference. Or we could say it like this. When it comes to sex, sex difference makes a difference. Now, one more passage because um, responsible biblical interpretation never looks at just one passage or one verse. If we go to Romans, I mean uh, Genesis chapter 2, if we go to the creation account, uh, look at what it says there. God's talking about the creation of, of the first woman. He says, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. That word suitable is the Hebrew word konegdo, which is a combination of two words, ke, which means like, and neged, which means opposite. In other words, Genesis is not saying, God is not saying that I will make a helper like Adam. Any human being could have fulfilled that purpose. He says, I will make a helper like opposite him. That's a woman. When it comes to sex, sex difference makes a difference. Theologian Christopher West um, puts all of this very beautifully. He says, God is infinitely other, infinitely different from his creation. And yet, this infinitely different creator wants to be one with his creation. God wants to unite with his creation. God wants to marry his creation. This is what the mystery of Jesus is all about. The marriage of creator and creature. The marriage of divinity and humanity. Friends, um, we could keep exploring passages like this. But at the very least, um, do you see how the questions are complex? The arguments are strong? And the stakes are really high? One of my concerns with a sermon like this is that um, all this back and forth theological argument can leave us feeling exhausted and beat down. So I want to stop here and just ask, how are we doing? This is hard. This is challenging. Our frames um, might be feeling the force of this right now, might be um, rejecting or, you know, I don't know. But I just I want to say I hope we're doing okay because I know this is challenging. But let's stop with the theological stuff now and move on to the last question. We've looked at what is our frame. We've just asked what is Paul saying. But lastly, what does all of this mean for us? Like I said, you know, we are not going to be able to unpack all of the questions. But let me focus on just a few things this morning, a few implications for us. And the first one is this. The first thing I would suggest we do is to be... Um, really honest about how the Christian frame of sex is, in our world, it sounds crazy. To say sex difference makes a difference in a love is love world is crazy. I know that. I, you know, it's hard for me to think I'm actually saying this on the internet for the rest of history. 
It's crazy. But you know what? This is nowhere near the craziest thing Christians believe. We also believe that this human being, Jesus Christ, is the God of the universe who physically rose from the dead. That's crazy. We also believe other crazy things like the personal dignity of every individual human and justice for the oppressed in society. If there is no God, those things are crazy. Now, some of you might think, wait a minute, those things are just obvious to any rational person. But as many historians are constantly pointing out, no, those beliefs are Christian moral categories that have been so deeply encoded into society that we're not even aware of it. And what we do is we, we take these Christian moral categories like dignity and justice and, and we use these Christian categories as the very basis by which we reject the Christian vision for sex. In other words, we use Christian morality to reject Christian morality. So if you're here this morning and you know the idea that sex difference makes a difference is something you struggle with, and I wouldn't blame you for that, that I would at least encourage you to maybe um, ponder your frame a little bit more, to open up your frame maybe a little bit more. You know, in our culture, we have a very strong tendency to devalue the importance of the body, to say sex difference makes no difference, and to elevate our internal desires, because love is love. Christianity says this is a false dichotomy. Love is love and sex difference. To, to drive a wedge between those two things is a false dichotomy. Instead, when Christianity says sex is union of difference, it diagonalizes or pulls both of these things together and says both of them are true. Both of them need to be honored. Both our internal desire for love and our external biological sex difference. Christianity holds both of these things together. And so I would encourage you maybe, maybe to open our frame to include both of these things. Second, one of the most deeply destructive ideas in the church is this idea that being gay is a sin, but being straight is just fine. I, I can't tell you how much damage I've seen done to people because of that idea right there. It's this idea that God's wrath is on gay people, but all of God's favor and approbation is on straight people. Friends, that is a profoundly unbiblical frame for sin. Notice towards the end of this passage, Paul says, since humans did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. And then he goes on to list like 20 other sins from slander to deceit to covetousness to cold-heartedness. Friends, here's the point. Um, Same-sex sexuality is just one subcategory in a larger category of sexual immorality. We looked at that last week. And sexual immorality is, is just one category in the even larger category of all human sin. Do you remember in week one we talked about how this world is not the way it's supposed to be? I've never met anybody that doesn't sense that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. It, every single part of our lives, including our sexuality, is touched by the not the way it's supposed to be-ness of this world. So for instance, I have a straight sexual orientation. 
But that does not mean that my sexuality isn't distorted by sin. It is. Every part of my life, including my sexuality, is distorted and disfigured by sin. But here's the really amazing thing about the gospel. You are not defined by your sin. Your sin describes you, but it never defines you. Our culture has catechized us into a frame that teaches us to root our identity in things that describe us, but don't define us. And, and what happens is when other people don't affirm those things about us, then we feel attacked at the very core of our being because that's who I am. We see this on the right with Christian nationalism. We also see it on the left with gender and sexuality. The great tragic exchange that's going on in this passage that Paul is talking about is that we exchange uh, the, that which ought to define us in exchange for that which can only describe us. And, and when that happens, friends, that's what Paul is talking about here. It, but you are defined by being created in the image of the God who wants to marry you. That's what really defines you. And so even though this tragic exchange has alienated us from God, just as adultery alienates one spouse from another, Jesus Christ is the ultimate bridegroom who came from heaven to earth in order to rescue his beloved at the cost of his life. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ lost his crown of glory, exchanged his crown of glory for a crown of thorns. On the cross, Jesus exchanged the love that he deserves in order to receive the, the rejection that we deserve so that we who deserve rejection for our unfaithfulness could receive the love that Jesus deserves for his perfect faithfulness. And friends, the more you open yourself up to that, it, when you become a Christian, that's what defines you. That becomes your new identity. And I would encourage you to rest in that identity. And thirdly, um, did you notice at the very end of this passage, Paul says, therefore, he's kind of wrapping up the discussion, therefore, you have no excuse, O human, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, you practice the very same things. In our world, in our culture wars, we are so quick to judge and to condemn. Affirming Christians, condemning non-affirming Christians. Non-affirming Christians, condemning everybody. But do you read this? Do you know um, that we are all just as much in need of grace and compassion as anybody else in this world? I hope you do. And so I especially want to encourage this church to be a place of welcome, respect, humility, and compassion towards everybody who walks through our doors, especially our LGBTQ sisters and brothers. Um, because this place needs to be a place of compassion, but the church, like I said, has so often been a place that is not safe for gay people. I think this church is different. I've seen it among you. And yet, if you're new here this morning and, and you are a member of the LGBTQ community, you may be wondering, especially in light of what I've said this morning, and I wouldn't blame you, but I want to pledge to you, uh, both for myself and on behalf of all the leadership of this church, that we are absolutely committed to making this church a place that is as welcoming as possible to all people. And especially if you're here this morning and you are 
gay or same-sex attracted or however you describe your experience. And you are somebody who's trying to follow Jesus. Somebody who's, who, who, who believes in this crazy sex ethic that says sex difference makes a difference and you're committed to living that out in your life. I want to say that, that we see you and we love you and we grateful for you and we want to support you here your presence and voice in this world is an often overlooked and often attacked voice and presence in this world attacked by the culture wars and I just want to encourage you that we see you we love you we're here for you and we want to support you because that's the way of Jesus you know Jesus nobody had a higher sex sex ethic than Jesus Nobody had a, a more rigorous sex ethic. Read the Sermon on the Mount. It's like, whoa, Jesus. And yet, sexual sinners, all sinners, but especially sexual sinners, flocked to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus loved them. And as far as I've ever been able to see in the Bible, Jesus never said, okay, you sex sinners and tax collectors, before I hang out with you, I just need you to know where I stand on sex, or greed, or whatever your sin is. No. Jesus loved them. He never led with the law. Jesus led with love. What Preston Sprinkle calls love without footnotes. That does not mean that Jesus was soft on sin. It's the opposite. Jesus died for our sin. But he did it because of his abounding love. And I would encourage us all, may we be filled with the same kind of love. Would you be willing to pray with me? Abba, Father, we are so grateful to you for this time together. Lord, I pray for our hearts right now. This is hard stuff. It's challenging stuff. It, it, it's painful for many of us here. I, I know that, Lord. And it never gives me any um, pleasure to dredge up pain for people. But you are the God who wants to do open heart surgery on your creation. And so I pray that you do open heart surgery on us this morning. Father, wherever we're at, whatever our frame is this morning, I pray that you would just give us light and help and grace and clarity to, to see you, Lord Jesus. Lord, we trust you. Whatever else we may think or believe about this world and about your creation, Lord, help us to see you, Lord Jesus. And we pray that you, Lord Jesus, would lead us in the way, the truth, and the life. For you are the way, the truth, and the life. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.